whether it's trauma, sudden cardiac arrest, poisoning, snake bite, whatever the reason yeah. is, if you can't immediately resuscitate them, at some point you're going to give up. And instead of giving up, you would use EPR. Well, welcome, Dr. Yaffe. Thanks so much for joining us today on the Business Line podcast. Real pleasure to have you here. How are you today? I'm doing fine. How are you doing? Fantastic. As you can see, it's Christmas season here uh, at our office. Uh, we're pretty excited for the time and actually really excited to kind of dive in, learn about you, your journey, and kind of what brought you to what you're doing today. I can't wait to share with our uh, with our audience about what you're doing. So why don't you uh, maybe quickly introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about yourself, doctor. Uh, my name is Lynn Yaffe. I was uh, raised in Baltimore, Maryland. I went to Johns Hopkins University undergraduate, majoring in biophysics. I had early admission to the University of Maryland Medical School. I went there and uh, then I did uh, postgraduate work at Columbia University in pathology. And I was always involved in research, even while in medical school. But when I was at Columbia, I uh, did some research there and started also doing uh, research at what was then called the Roche Institute of Molecular Biology, sort of an independent research institute of Hoffman LaRoche. And while working there in uh, Nutley, New Jersey, and, and across the, uh, the uh, river at uh, Columbia University, I had um, obligated service in the Navy. Um, mm -hmm. This was at the Vietnam War to ensure that you could finish all of your residency training. Oh, you wow. would obligate yourself to four years. Other than otherwise, you you ran the risk of being uh, of drafted. Uh, and no sooner than I signed on the dotted line, obligating myself to four years. Of course, the Vietnam War came to an end. So uh, eventually, the Navy contacted me and said I needed to uh, fulfill my obligation. So I went to what was called the Naval Medical Research Institute in Bethesda, across from NIH, which is a, a research, a medical research lab in the Navy. And I spent a number of years there. And in the early days, the Navy sort of, they gave you money to do whatever you wanted to do. That's not <laughs> true anymore, of course. And in the, uh, you know, sort of the second half of my time in the Navy, uh, you know, they, uh, you had to do something specific for uh, for uh, to benefit the Navy. But a after a few years, I said, well, this is a good thing. So there was no point in getting out. I mean, I had offers to go other places, but I stayed in the Navy. Most of my 20 years as a Naval Medical Officer, I was what's called a Beltway Sailor, meaning I stayed within the Washington Beltway. <laughs> the only time I, I, I stepped foot on a ship was when it was in dock, like in Portsmouth, Virginia, or Norfolk, or in San Diego on a trip. I never actually, uh, you know, I was never on a ship when they pulled anchor and, yeah. and went anywhere. But I've been on uh, submarines when they're, uh, you know, at uh, Newport, in, uh, at New London, in, in Connecticut. Um, uh, but so I was a Beltway bail uh, a sailor. And they uh, and of course, they didn't let you stay at one place your whole 20 years. So while most of my time I spent at the lab bench, I also spent time at the Navy uh, a Bureau of Medicine and Surgery, working for the Surgeon General of the Navy. Uh, that time it was Admiral Zimbel. I spent time in the office of the Director of Research and Engineering at the Pentagon. I was a program manager. For a number of years while at the bench, I handled tens of millions of dollars in Navy research money that went to Navy labs and also to university contracts uh, to do uh, research required by the Navy. And in my um, uh, latter years of a program manager, uh, there was always a concern about, obviously, and I did most of my work in combat casualty care, concern about how to save you know, those killed in action on the battlefield which is an Army, Navy, Marine Corps uh, issue. Sure. You know, there's good data uh, on those killed in action, you know, let's say going back to the Vietnam War. And in Vietnam uh, and subsequent uh, uh, U.S. conflicts uh, all the way up to the current day, 80% of those killed in action die from massive bleeding. 
before, you know, internal bleeding, extremity bleeding, that you can't stop the all of the bleeding uh, adequately with any tourniquet. So they rapidly go into cardiac arrest from the loss of blood. It's called exsanguination cardiac arrest. And uh, all of the data uh, 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 is that 80% of those 80%. killed in action die from that exsanguination cardiac arrest. In, uh, you know, in Vietnam, when they do uh, autopsies on many of those and in, in uh, you know, more recent years, they're able to use uh, um, imaging to look at the injuries. And many, many, many of those killed in action have repairable injuries, assuming if you could put them on the operating table immediately and give them adequate fluid, uh, you know, you, they have repairable injuries, but that can't yeah. be done on the battlefield, even though, you know, surgeons are brought fairly close to the uh, to um, to the front line, so to speak. Uh, it's very hard to do what needs to be done, um, you know, in the combat theater. So that was always a concern of the of the Navy and the Army, uh, of what to do for those 80 percent killed in action. You know, the 20, other 20 percent, you know, they'll have massive head wounds and uh, and Things so they can't just, yeah. be saved. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And so at a conference, uh, I met uh, Dr. Peter Saffer. And Dr. Peter Saffer, he's considered the father of cardiopulmonary resuscitation. He invented mouth-to-mouth -mouth breathing, integrated it oh. with president, with sort of the beginnings of chest compressions that weren't adequately done if you can't get oxygen in. So he started a, a, a program uh, for cardiopulmonary resuscitation after he invented mouth-to-mouth. Uh, -mouth. You know, they had other procedures then, you, you're probably too young to recall, where they would raise your arms over your head and do crazy things, but none of those procedures got in enough oxygen until mouth-to-mouth -mouth was done. And he wrote a book called The ABCs of uh, Resuscitation that became the manual for um, first responders. And actually in those late 50s, early 60s, uh, there was no 911 to call. There were no right. paramedics. There were just ambulance drivers. And Dr. Saffer trained the first paramedics. He was at the University of Pittsburgh then. Um, and he got together a group of African-American uh, men who were unemployed or hospital orderlies. And he and his protege at the time, whose name was Nancy Caroline, they trained the first paramedic team, and it was called Freedom House. And they were on 24-7 standby, uh, that team, you know, the different members, and they would be called by the police department in Pittsburgh if they thought it was a medical reason that they were called. Before 911, it was the police who would get called. And uh, they went out and, you know, they're funny anecdotes like and I've met uh, uh, about a year ago, I met uh, some of those first paramedics from Freedom House trained by Dr. Saffer and they were in their 80s. Uh, <laughs> but they said sometimes they would go into a, a white neighborhood and if it's a man who had a heart attack, let's say, and he needed CPR, the people there would say, well, well I don't want an African-American resuscitating really? my husband. Uh, and obviously, you know, we're talking about true. the early 60s. Yeah. And so uh, things have, uh, of, have obviously changed. But Dr. Saffer uh, went around the world and his early paramedics, they went to other cities and they trained more paramedics. And in the early 60s, 911 was started. And he designed really the first am paramedic ambulance he designed. And he did a number of other firsts. He really, he's responsible for having the first independent department of anesthesiology. He was an anesthesiologist. And in those late 50s, uh, early 60s, anesthesiologists worked in the department of surgery. Uh, but now, of course, every place has an independent department. He yep. was at Johns Hopkins at the time uh, in the Department of Surgery, and he asked if uh, the surgeons would permit an independent department of anesthesiology. You know, having an independent department is important for professional growth and research and, you know, independence. And Hopkins said no. Nope. And so he went to the University of Pittsburgh, where he had friends and a, and a department was started there. He also, you know, for uh, CPR, it's interesting, you can look up on YouTube or Wikipedia, the first 
mannequin for practicing CPR he developed called Rasasa Annie. It was a full life mannequin and it was made in Europe by a Norwegian company called Lairdal. And Lairdal was a doll company that made dolls that would close their eyes when you put them down to go to sleep. But Dr. Saffer had to make a, um, a mannequin and they used the face of the death mask of a woman who drowned in the Seine River in Paris, a very beautiful uh, young lady. And that became the, uh, wow. the first for Sussa Annie. And the company, Norwegian company Lairdal now, they don't make dolls anymore. They make simulators, defibrillators, and other medical they equipment. The medical and they're business. an international yeah. <laughs> company. So there's an interesting story there. Now, when Dr. Saffer became aware of the fact that that um, eighty percent of combat casualties die from massive bleeding, and that nothing could be done. He said the only thing you can do is rapid, profound hypothermia. And in those early days, uh, um, you know, in the in the uh, mid nineties, uh, you know, or, or the early to mid nineties, when uh, he received funding uh, for this through the Navy and Army efforts. Uh, he called it suspended animation, temporary suspended animation. He said, don't worry about resuscitating the patient. Just prevent their vital organs from dying. Don't, you know, you don't have to resuscitate them. Just keep the, the heart, the brain, the lungs, the liver, the kidneys. Keep those vital organs from dying. Now, how do you do that? You lower the temperature of those organs or the whole body down to 10 degrees Celsius, which is 50 degrees Fahrenheit. At that low temperature, the body or those organs don't need oxygen for at least three hours because you've lowered the metabolism to the point where, where the cellular life is sort of in suspended animation. You don't need oxygen. Obviously, you can't stay that way forever that's science fiction. And maybe in yeah. the future, you will be able to be in suspended animation for years. But if you cool the body down, particularly the brain and heart, where oxygen is really critical, then you have a three to four hour window where you don't have to worry about doing CPR. There's no need for oxygen. There's no heartbeat. There are no brain waves. I mean, you could say that the patient or the victim appears dead but there's still cellular life. So if you, can, if you can repair their injuries and then rewarm them, they can then be what's called delayed resuscitated. You know, you may have heard, and in the medical literature, there are anecdotal stories where someone is buried in an avalanche. Sure. We're talking about a, you know, um, a healthy skier. They're buried in an avalanche and it takes a couple of hours for the rescuers to find them and then they rewarm them. And lo and behold, some of the sometimes those people are resuscitated, even though they've been uh, they haven't had any heartbeat and no respirations for a couple of hours, but they cool down so fast that they don't require the oxygen and then they're able to be resuscitated. Now it's a different game when you're talking about a combat casualty or a gunshot victim or an yeah. automobile accident that, uh, victim that can't be resuscitated. But the principle is the same. Don't try to resuscitate them, just keep them from dying until you can get them to a hospital and do surgical repairs. There have also been some cases where small children have fallen into a great lake in the United States in the in the middle of winter and they cool down so fast that the divers are able to find them, retrieve them and then rewarm them. And so that's what EPR is about. It's about cooling the patient down. If you can't resuscitate them immediately by CPR and defibrillation, well, cool them down, take them to the hospital or if this happened in a hospital, cool them down in the hospital do the surgical repairs, get everything done, the patient closed. They're hooked up to what's called a cardiopulmonary bypass machine because you have to give them back blood because the cool down procedure is done with ice cold saline. So you've essentially flushed out their blood with a cold solution. And so on cardiopulmonary bypass, you return their the blood, you know, you've typed them by then or you use universal donor blood 
and then uh, you rewarm them on the cardiopulmonary bypass machine. And then lo and behold, if all has gone well, their heart spontaneously starts to beat. If it doesn't start to spontaneously beat, you can try you can defibrillate them to get their heart started. Now, for many years, research was done in large animals, pigs, and, uh, you know, they would, under anesthesia, of course, they would uh, bleed the pig, perform some uh, surgical trauma, like removing the spleen or whatever. They would let them go into cardiac arrest, wait five minutes, do pig CPR, and obviously there's not enough blood in the animal. You can't get the heart started. Then they give the pig blood back. And then they, uh, you know, after they would do the, re after they do the repairs, they would give the blood back, rewarm them. And then lo and behold, the large animals, they'd be resuscitated and they, they'd get up after, you know, a little while. And, uh, usually uh, animals, they could, pigs are smart. They could be trained to do things. And then after these procedures, they would uh, remember whatever tricks you taught them. Um, and it took a number of years to get the FDA to approve a clinical trial of this. So mm -hmm. I don't want you all to get ahead of the, uh, the idea, but we're in a clinical trial now at Maryland Shock Trauma. Um, you know, we'd like to keep an, a lid on the results until the FDA looks at it. But some information initially got out of uh, uh, couple of years ago in there in the in the medical news literature it said a human being had been put in suspended animation for the first time that was us and um and, and that's the story you know it, it's not a it's not a panacea just like uh you know everybody who gets um cpr done doesn't necessarily uh stand up and is in good health Sometimes uh, or many times the person is very lucky and they are resuscitated. They go to a hospital, you know, maybe they need something done to their heart, stents or whatever. And, they're, and then they're doing fine. They go home. And if they had good CPR done mentally, they're 100 percent. Sometimes a person is resuscitated, but they're not mentally there afterwards. And it may be because... CPR was started too late or the CPR was done by a bystander and they didn't get adequate oxygen in, you know, until the paramedics there. So the same problems that you have after CPR, because EPR would come after, let's say, a failed CPR, yeah. we may still have, you know, recovery problems. Um, that's why ultimately, if the FDA likes what's being done and we have reasonable results, they'll allow us to start EPR earlier in a difficult CPR case. Right now, the clinical trial is done with a number of FDA requirements, which are understandable. It's the way research procedures are done. For instance, the person that will get EPR performed on them cannot go into cardiac arrest until they arrive at the trauma center. So if you're a gunshot victim or an automobile accident victim and you're bleeding, and if you go into cardiac arrest at the scene of the accident, you're not going to be an EPR candidate because, mm -hmm. because the surgeons back at the trauma center don't know time zero. So if you're bleeding, you have to have heart function, cardiac function, until you get to the hospital. Then you then it's okay to go into cardiac arrest because the surgeons are there. They say, oh, this guy went into cardiac arrest. We'll do the very best CPR. They may work on you for 30 or 40 minutes. They intubate you. You're getting the best CPR. Mm -hmm. And if that still doesn't work, then they open an envelope and say, well, we'll do EPR on this person. Or the envelope says, no, this will be a control person. They have to have control. So there, there are restrictions, but it's a step-by-step -step process like any new medical advance. So, you know, this will work. I, you know, um, profound hypothermia is one step lower than what's called deep hypothermia. Deep hypothermia goes to about 16 degrees Celsius. We go down to 10 degrees Celsius. 
16 degree cooling on cardiopulmonary bypass is frequently done for neurovascular surgery. They want to lower your blood pressure during that neurovascular surgery so you don't have a brain bleed. And so they cool you down to take the edge off of, off of oxygen demands for your brain to prevent any perhaps uh, uh, bleeding problems. So that's, so, you know, hypothermia is not unknown in the medical field. You know, it's, there's mild, I'll say mild, deep, and profound. We do profound. Deep is done in some surgical procedures now while you're on cardiopulmonary bypass. Mild hypothermia is just two to three degrees lower than normal, normal being 37 degrees Celsius. If you drop your temperature two, to two or three degrees Celsius, it doesn't stop your heart from beating. If you go cooler than three degrees, you run into the possibility of your heart stopping. So mild hypothermia that doesn't stop your heart from beating is used in severe cardiac arrest. When someone is resuscitated with CPR, but they remain unconscious, most university centers put that person or maintain that person in mild hypothermia by cooling blankets is the most common way of doing it. Sometimes they'll put a cooling catheter uh, through a groin vessel into your vena cava, and they shunt cold fluid in and out of that blind end catheter um, uh, that's sort of a metal tube on, on the end of it to help cool your blood a few, a few degrees. So hypothermia is not unknown in the medical field. Profound hypothermia that we do is not done until EPR. And so that's the... Uh, that's the, I should also add, like in every major medical intervention now that requires monitoring and decision support, artificial intelligence is being used and looked at, um, particularly in, ra in radiology, where it's a matter of, of saying, well, here's my x-ray, my MRI, my CT scan, how does that compare to 10,000 others that have the same complaint? And the, the AI can notice more problems than, let's say, you know, or assured not to miss anything that a radiologist might miss. They've already discovered that uh, mammography for women looking for breast cancer at the universities that are, that are implementing AI as an experimental procedure to look at those mammograms the mammogram looked at by artificial intelligent capability doesn't miss the tiniest of lesion. It's oh. amazing. And uh, you've probably been to your ophth ophthalmologist for an eye exam, you know, looking at your retina and, and all of those different things that are done by equipment. And then the ophthalmologist comes in at the last minute, looks at all these images on the screen and, and, and tells you what's going to be done. Ophthalmology yeah. is so image intensive in a sense that artificial intelligence can do it. Yes, you still want to have an ophthalmologist say, this is the AI recommendation and, right. and what they found. So the same will be for, for EPR. EPR needs monitoring of brain waves, cardiac function, oxygen, temperature, you know, uh, the, the speed of the cooling solution. Uh, and, and then whether you you have to maintain once they get to the cold target temperature of 10 degrees and you transport them doing surgery, you still want monitoring to go on because maybe you need to continue to cool them a little bit uh, uh, during that three hour procedure. So AI is monitoring all those things and advising the first responder and the surgeon where we are in the procedure and is everything being maintained properly and even giving some vice, uh, advice if there's some glitches in the procedure or, or, or what to modify. Um, augmented reality together with AI comes into the fact that for uh, a patient where CPR has failed and we have to do EPR, you have to put a large bore catheter, a catheter like the size of your finger 
into an arterial vessel, let's say into the femoral artery in the groin or into the arch of the aorta. So we've developed techniques using ultrasound. Um, I won't go into all the details, but ultrasound yeah. where it can locate the arch of the aorta and it knows where the tip of the introducer is for the catheter. And it's almost like a video game where you can guide your catheter in by watching a monitor and 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 the paramedic can see that with um, augmented reality almost like the ultrasound image is placed over the patient in a sense so you see yep. you sort of you're looking inside the patient with augmented reality and and all of that is possible now it's all possible from from advanced technology from gaming and whatnot, that you can look at an ultrasound image superimposed over the patient, and that'll help guide your catheter. Ultimately, we want to have a fully automated system that is augmented reality uh, performed by artificial intelligence to put a catheter in the right place. So there's no time delays once a decision is made or while you're doing CPR, just in case you're not successful with CPR, you get a catheter placed. And so I think that's the future, AI uh, uh, and augmented reality in order to perform and monitor EPR and then get them to the hospital for the surgeons to do what they have to do. And I guess at one point in the, in the near to distant future, the surgery will be done by a robot as there is <laughs> robotic surgery done in some circumstances. Well, you know, it's it's interesting. Um, the first place my mind starts to go while you're talking to this uh, about this subject now, when you're talking about the different technologies, it kind of was born, your, your work born out of working in the military and the Navy and how a lot of the times technologies come out of, you know, the poor situations that happen during, you know, the tragic times of war but then you're talking about entertainment type things gaming and augmented reality and virtual reality how that helps with the tech but i'm thinking you know like i remember i remember being in college back in the early 2000s and um all the different buildings they started uh i was in fundraising for the college too they we started fundraising to put in aeds in the building you know the, the shock things to, to bring people back and just years before that you would only see those in in shows and they were only at hospitals you weren't touching those things, only the professionals. I mean, imagine a point where like down the road, you could save someone using an ERP, uh, EPR machine. And if the technology got advanced enough, you that someone could put on a, you know, a, uh, a device, it would show them right exactly what to do, give them the confidence to be able to do it with some basic training, where you could save a lot of lives. Oh, you're absolutely right. That is the future. You know, in the US, Every day, there are about 1,500 people, give or take, that suffer from sudden cardiac arrest. Hmm. And there are various advances that are being made, obviously CPR, obviously uh, EPR, to try and save those people when CPR fails. There are another 500 or so people that are trauma victims, whether they're automobile accidents is a big one, gunshot wounds is a yeah. big one. Um, you know, there's a possibility depending on the circumstances that this could be used in drug overdoses, you know, mm. with fentanyl, if you can't get Narcan to the patient, and if Nar if time has gone on that Narcan has, is not immediately effective, and, and you start CPR, you know, by mouth to mouth and, and cardiac compressions, in some cases, maybe EPR could be used. So whenever someone's in cardiac arrest, whether it's trauma, sudden cardiac arrest, poisoning, snake bite, whatever the reason yeah. is, um, if you can't immediately resuscitate them, at some point you're going to give up. And instead of giving up, you would use EPR. So, I mean, this isn't so, I mean, obviously there's some sci-fi stuff that people start thinking, wow, freezing brains and stuff like that. But like, I'm thinking like, so how fast, you're saying rapid, rapid decrease in body temperature down to that yes. that 50 or so degree Fahrenheit level. Right. How fast does that have to happen to be effective? As soon finding? as, let's say you're doing CPR, you've done defibrillation, you're continuing CPR, you cannot get the heart started. Maybe you've tried defibrillation two, three times at yeah. most if you're in the field. So you say, now in this day and age, you would say, well, we've tried defibrillation yeah. three times. We've been doing this for 20 minutes now. We're going to give up. Then if you do EPR from the time 
you start pumping in that cold solution, you must reach target temperature within, let's say, 10 minutes, 8 to 11 minutes. So you have 10 because minutes you're to good go without oxygen. Well, well, remember, even though you're doing uh, EPR, you probably want to continue. If you're obviously a first responder, you'll have a breathing bag and you may have intubated the patient or, or just a mask breathing. You're not doing mouth to mouth. You're using what's called an AMBU bag. And, and so you continue that while you're cooling so that while the oxygen may be needed by the brain, as you're cooling down a, a little bit. But once you get to target temperature, you don't have to worry about that. But you need to do it quickly. And so training and certification will be necessary for those first responders, like any training is needed for them. But it, it's done quickly. It's done okay. quickly. Let's say within uh, 10 minutes. The, the, the faster, the better, and the colder, the better. Not freezing. This is not freezing. Right. We're uh, above freezing temperatures, but the colder, the better, um, and the faster, the better. Now, at the Saffer Center, which is named at the University of Pittsburgh, which is named after Dr. Saffer, he died in 2003, and I worked with him from about 1995 to, until his oh. death. He worked up until about 10 days before he died Jeez, from cancer. Man. But um, they did a lot of work uh, in animals, uh, of rats plus larger animals, in is there a way we can do this and protect the brain at a higher temperature? In other words, instead of going to 10 degrees, can we just go to 16 degrees Celsius or 20 degrees Celsius together with additives in the ice cold saline that would help to protect the brain? And, and some of that work is still being done. Um, you know, there are, I, I won't get into some of the potential drugs that can be that could be used to sort of take the edge off of going down to 10 degrees Celsius. There are a lot of um, neuroprotectants that are worked on uh, for other reasons than EPR, reasons of stroke uh, uh, that, uh, that seem to have uh, uh, a tremendous beneficial effects on, on recovery after stroke. And these could be used in CPR in EPR. And so there's a lot of research and even clinical trials going on with that. So I think one day EPR may be able to be done at a higher temperature okay. uh, than 10 degrees Celsius, but we're not there yet. Our goal is to, is to complete the clinical trial, see what the FDA says. The FDA may say, this is wonderful, Everything worked out fine, but we need to expand the clinical trial to make sure that more centers are capable of doing it. I'm not predicting what they're saying. These are just options. They may say, okay, you've done this at one center, one trauma center, and, and Maryland Shock Trauma is a premier trauma center. Uh, 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 yeah. the, the clinical trial is run by Sam Tisherman, who's another protege of Dr. Saffer, and... Um, the uh, head trauma surgeon at Maryland Shock Trauma is Tom Scalia, who's recognized as like one of the top two or three trauma surgeons in the world. He's a strong supporter of EPR technology. But the FDA may want to expand the clinical trial. Uh, it's hard to predict. Uh, but, you know, in one sense, EPR is about the immediate possibility of saving a life. It's not like we have a cancer drug that we think may be better than this other cancer drug. And, you know, they make a comparison and it's not as though people aren't being treated with the previous cancer drug. Um, uh, and so um, in one sense, EPR, if you don't approve EPR, assuming a, a successful clinical trial, and I'm sure we're going to be successful without it, you're letting all those people with failed CPR die. You're not giving them one more chance at survival. So I think the FDA looks at that. And, you know, we went through a long process of medical ethics. Sure. Because, um, you know, people relate failed CPR to death, you know, and we had to make it clear and have the, you know, the, um, um, what do you call it, a community um, uh, committees to look at this and give approval, you know, they'll have 
teachers and uh, ministers on a panel to look at this. But, you know, we don't want people to have the impression as though we're resurrecting anyone. We're not resurrecting anyone. We're preventing people from dying. Uh, big difference. Um, but it takes public education, and, and we're aware of that. And uh, I think podcasts are part of that to let people know it's coming down the pike because um, we want EPR to be used appropriately and correctly. Um, um, you know, we don't want things to, uh, you know, to people to use it indiscriminately. It'll require training certification. Um, and we hope to have a simulator uh, done so that uh, people will be able, you know, to practice on a simulator in a hospital. Um, you, you know, just, you know, doing CPR, it's interesting that major medical centers now for many procedures like CPR, you know, unrelated CPR, but they, a, a, a team, a group of nurses and doctors that may respond to a code saying a patient has gone into cardiac arrest, we need CPR, and they go to the room to do CPR, those people usually yearly or every two years, they're trained in a simulated, a simulation environment because they discover like any group that goes to an emergency, they may waste a precious minute looking around at each other saying, well, who's going to do this? Who's going right. to do that? What do we who's do? in charge? Yeah. But they all know about how to, let's say, lead the team and get started. And someone say, okay, you do this, you do that, you do this. And simulation training breaks down that wall of, well, I don't want to, you know, step on anybody's toes right, yeah. uh, and take charge. And so you've got a much better chance of successful CPR where where the professionals go through annual or or or, or twice yearly uh, or every two years, some sort of simulation training. And in medical school now, uh, medical and nursing school, my God, they do a huge amount of simulation training. Every medical school now has a simulation center. Pittsburgh has one of the very first, um, but every medical school has simulation where they can go and practice on full-size mannequins uh, that have different uh, uh, medical symptoms and problems. And sometimes they they speak and respond, and uh, if you make a mistake, of course, uh, the patient, die the simulator dies on you and uh, tells you what you did wrong. And yeah. It's a very interesting environment. Yeah, some would say even the fact, uh, the ability to do simulations like that would have been science fiction 40 years ago. It, you know what no. I mean? From from that standpoint, it's, it's just amazing. Right. And it's all due to advanced computer technology. Yeah. So yeah, Dr. Yaffe, you know, like my question. So anyway, let me introduce myself. I'm Manny. Uh, can you hear me? Uh, uh, my mic is on mute. Speak a little bit louder, okay. perhaps. Uh, can you hear me now? Yes. Yes. Okay. I can so hear yeah, you. let me introduce myself. I'm Manny. So my question would be, you know, like, okay, in the future, if everything works out well, all the clinical trials are successful. Can we st uh, straight away, you know, go to EPR instead of, you know, like jumping the hoops like, you know, CPR and, you know, like defibrillator? Why not, you know, just give patients straight away EPR rather than, you know, trying e e CPR? I mean, do you think that, you know, these uh, CPR and defibrillator will be become obsolete once EPR becomes... I think that's, becomes a very, uh, that's a very interesting and exciting point you made. Mm -hmm. That mm -hmm. if you Good look job, at maybe. the patient and say, oh, we have to do CPR on this patient. Mm-hmm. Why don't we just do EPR? Yeah. Because the whole idea is to maximally protect the brain. Protect yeah. Yep. You know, so if you immediately do mouth to mouth, uh, you know, and uh, uh, a few chest compressions just while you're putting in that catheter or having your AI robotic device put in that catheter, cool them down. Yeah. And then you, you, you resuscitate them afterwards, you know, once you get them back to the hospital. And, and that may be the future. Uh, you know, it's a stepwise thing with the FDA. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, the whole idea is to make sure the brain is protected. And if the best way to do that is to do immediate EPR or head yeah. cooling or something, uh, 
that gets that, that brain cool down and protect it. You know, maybe as an interim thing, you know, right now, if CPR is being done on someone, they may set up, depending on the situations, to start an IV, but they're not giving them uh, brain protected drugs. You know, mm -hmm. maybe there'll be an interim step where as soon as someone needs CPR, the first thing you do is shoot them full of a drug that is designed to protect the brain from needing too much oxygen. Uh, but I think you make an excellent point. Uh, I think it'll come down to the invasiveness of it, right? If once technology step-by-step step gets to the point where that catheter might not need to be so big or you can get the liquid to where it needs to be faster and, and with less invasiveness, and then... You know, then you make it easier for it to be performed. Right. And then I know, I think you the, know, the some people. Yeah, I mean, you know, even though right now the catheter is big. Yeah. I mean, I would like, you know, like if I'm going through some, you know, like experience like that, I would like people to, you know, do the EPR on me first rather than trying to do the CPR and yeah, right. you know, defibrillator. Yeah. You're not going to even be conscious. Pe people so. have, yeah, people have looked at, and I think there's still some clinical trials. There are definitely clinical trials going on where what can you do to cool the brain? more directly while doing CPR. And people have talked about inhaling a cold vapor, you know, uh, like if you're uh, cooling something through the nostrils, you know, you get your sinuses yeah. cooled down and that has get the brain freeze from ice brain. cream. Yeah. Um, and right. so, you know, that's mm. what it's all about is cooling the brain. So people are looking at various techniques and EPR would be the, let's say the, uh, the immediate uh, way of doing it. Yeah, the go-to uh, procedure. And yeah. hopefully one day that'll be true. I think mm -hmm. sooner than later. Just imagine the thousands of lives. You know, oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. Oh, and in, in third world countries, in one sense, uh, where you need to buy time for transport from rural areas, if you can at least get EPR done at that ro remote location, I mean, you need to have the cool solution available or the neuroprotectants and you need the catheter kit there and someone who knows how to do it, uh, you know, and whatever degree of automation is available, fine. But, but buying time is very important for the helicopter or the ambulance to get there and transport the patient. Mm -hmm. So I think EPR will have an important impact in third world countries that do have uh, medical capabilities, particularly in their larger urban areas, less so in their rural environments. But if they can get EPR into the rural environment, I think that would be very helpful. That's even yeah. true in the U.S. that in a re remote location, oh, yeah. you know, uh, that uh, three hours is a lifetime. They have difficulty. Lifetime. I mean, you know, yeah. Uh, from my experience, one of my uncle, you know, like he was in a remote location in India, yeah. and by the time, you know, they took him to the hospital, he died on the way. And it took exactly, you know, like around three, four hours for him to be transported. So, you know, with the technology life. like this, yeah, I mean, it will it will save lots of lives, hmm. you know. Oh, yeah. absolutely. Absolutely. Doc, you've had a, a, an unbelievably uh, varied life leading up to this point. At what point did you kind of realize that you were kind of shifting down this road in particular and going to be kind of dedicating your uh, your energy to this EPR technology. Well, I think it 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 really uh, I owe it all to Dr. Saffer from the. It's all meeting him. That was the tipping point. Hmm. Yeah, he was an amazing guy. I mean, I got involved with him because there was always a military interest in how can we save those killed in action. Right. But yep. he brought it to a reality, and he was an amazing guy. I mean, he was inspirational, you know, dedicated to his work, dedicated to saving lives. Um, and and so that was uh, an amazing fellow. I had the honor of being one of the seven people at his memorial service to give a eulogy. So oh. at the University of Pittsburgh, um, they have the Heinz Chapel, which is a cathedral like building that was built by, I don't know, the original Heinz, because he thought there was no church grand enough in Pittsburgh uh, right. for his son to be married. So he built this cathedral, essentially. And uh, ultimately, you know, in 
in <laughs> current times. No family wants to uh, maintain a cathedral, so they gave it to uh, the University of Pittsburgh. And now the University of Pittsburgh, I guess if you're having a wedding, you can rent it or whatever uh, the charge is. But for distinguished professors and members of the University of Pittsburgh, they'll have memorial services there. So he had a memorial uh, service that must have been, it was standing room only, maybe over 3,000 people. And they started off, uh, you know, like the first uh, uh, eulogizer was, was lowly me. And then, uh, you know, uh, Sam Tisherman, uh, who's our trauma surgeon for the clinical trial, Pat Kahanick, another protege who's the current director and distinguished professor, director of the Saffer Center and and the uh, the uh, the uh, chairman and CEO of Lairdall, who I, I had mentioned made <laughs> yep. the first for Sussa Annie, you know, the son of the uh, original guy, the dean of the medical school and the chancellor of the university. I may have left someone out. And there was an army representative there. That, so, you know, he had uh, who gets uh, seven uh, uh, or eight eulogies uh, and so he was a very distinguished, wonderful individual. He was nominated for the Nobel Prize three times. They put his name in, you know, and a lot of people have to endorse that. He was never awarded the uh, Nobel Prize, but, but but to be nominated is a is a privilege. It's a, big, yeah. it's a pretty yeah. big thing, yeah. Um, he knew everyone. It, it was fun spending time with him, not only in the laboratory, but also going to uh, dinner with him. You know, wherever I would go with him in Pittsburgh, everybody knew him. You know, we were, if on occasion we go to the Pittsburgh Symphony, he could go backstage. Everyone knew him. Uh, he was an amazing guy, no question about it. Many of his protégés are the trauma surgeons all over Europe. And, uh, uh, you know, it's quite amazing. They would come from all over the world to train with Dr. Saffer. Okay, so Doc, you know, like about this uh, technology, the EPR technology that, uh, you know, we are talking about here, was this like first thought of and, you know, like started working on only in US or it's being, you know, like being researched on around, you know, globally? Well, we have plans for uh, uh, initially moving into, uh, let's say, the European Union and the UK. We've been contacted by trauma surgeons who follow what we do in the UK and uh, they want to implement this as soon as uh, you know we're ready to uh, to involve them and the same with some of Dr. Saffer's proteges in uh, European countries who'd like to you know see the data when the FDA does it and to implement it there and we don't have enough money to let's say start a clinical trial in Europe as we would like to do we're very close to having uh, significant investment dollars. We're working with a few investment groups now. Uh, I guess it's best or appropriate for me not to name them, sure. but they're doing their due diligence. They're very excited about it. So I hope, uh, my fingers are crossed, that by the end of this year or in early January, we'll have sufficient funds to really move forward on a, uh, uh, on a, on a, on a, I won't say global, but, but let's say what industrialized world uh, uh, approach. I mean, no, absolutely. I guess it's the way of all things. We have to do industrialized countries first. And then, uh, you know, I, I, we still are dedicated to getting this to third world countries. I mean, you mentioned India. India is more than capable of implementing this, uh, you know, in their urban areas. No question about it. They have. Uh, uh, all the necessary capabilities to do this. Um, South Africa has all the capabilities. Japan, obviously. Uh, China has has the capabilities in their urban centers. Australia. Um, and so it can be done around the world. Uh, yeah, but Europe first, because, you know, their population is already on the decline. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so we need to save lives there world first. World India, we don't have to worry. Just, yeah. Yeah, and we have yeah, more We can contacts. produce faster than anyone else. <laughs> I have some contacts in India. You know, and mm -hmm. it all boils down to a question of money. Yeah. You know, uh, where the FDA is and money. Yeah. You know, so you speaking, can only I mean, handle speaking so of that, I mean, time. 
Doctor, yeah. it almost seems like a foregone conclusion. We're getting close to this happening. Was there a time uh, in your journey from inception and meeting Dr. Saffer and coming along? Was there a time when you thought that you were you were up against an obstacle you weren't able to overcome? I love stories of you know uh, struggle in overcoming that struggle, and you're here now. Well, I don't I don't know whether I call it a struggle, but certainly there are hurdles. The FDA uh, um, was a hurdle getting everything in in place exactly you know what the uh the protocol was going to be what restrictions they were going to be the ethics of this you know sam tisherman and the Saffer center we had to get you know some distinguished medical ethicists to sort of write supporting letters um and there was always and there still is the concern and i, I don't want to you know waste a, a lot of your time with it but there's in the U.S. in particular, there's always the concern about who pays. Mm. OK, um, sure. emergency medical services cannot be denied, regardless of your socioeconomic status in the U.S. Uh, if you if the paramedics come or if you walk into the emergency room and you have no insurance and it's an emergency, you get treated. And uh, if you need CPR, you'll get CPR. And if you're resuscitated, they may say, well, okay, well, he's resuscitated. Who's going to pay for the aftercare? Like if you need rehab for some reason, yeah. or if you go to the emergency room, you had a stroke, and okay, they've gotten you over the critical period. Who's going to pay for the rehab if you have no insurance? Well, it's sort of a complex system in the U.S., and the bottom line is that the government in some form or another, whether it's Obamacare, Affordable Care Act, whether it's Medicaid, whether it's grants to hospitals to help them offset, you know, their uh, non-compensated care. In one sense, the taxpayers pay. You know, it's how it gets distributed. You know, at hospitals, they can't deny care. So they have to say, well, how are we going to pay for that emergency care procedures or the emergency? How they're going to care? And well, there's always a way, you know, we figure out we figure out ways to, to, yeah. to let's say, make endowments I mean, and get billions of dollars, on. you know. Yeah. So. Yeah. Now, I mean, basically government programs in one form yeah. or another. It would be nice if it all came under national health care, like in the UK or most other uh, European countries. There's not a question of who pays, but in this country, well, we it's, it's always a question. Someone <laughs> asks, you know, well, how the decisions are made and who pays? Well, it's against the law not to provide emergency services. Yeah, you know, when I worked in FDA approved and it'll save a life, it's got to be attempted. I worked in fundraising for a number of years when I was young. I studied nonprofit administration. I cut my teeth in fundraising. And listen, if you can. It's sales. You know, I'm doing sales now. If you can, if you have a story that you can tell in a way that emotionally connects with people that have either a little bit of money to spare or a lot, a lot of money can be raised and put no place to pay for these kind of things. It doesn't necessarily, I don't think, always have to be like the taxpayer, or even assurance provider. We work in that world right. too. Like with the right goal in mind and a way to get there. I mean, I, I mean, I look at colleges and universities. Yeah, educating kids or young people to become whatever they need to be to provide for scholarships—that's all great things. But it's nowhere near as important as saving a life. Oh yeah. And if you can, if you get the right person, a right team at, you know, behind a, a big uh, network hospital or even university hospitals to start an endowment that all it's meant to do is save the lives of people with EPR, you can make sure that it's always paid for. Right. Yeah. So. And eventually the U.S. is going to get to the point where there's universal health care. I mean, in one sense, in the military and for veterans, it's already universal health care for them. Uh, and for people over 65 with Medicare, it's virtually universal health care uh, and Medicaid. So the U.S. is getting there. Um, and uh, so. Uh, it's true. In time. We'll, we'll get there in some The market form. will dictate. If we, you know, the market yeah. will dictate and make it work. You're doing a, a magnificent job of moving this forward, which we're unbelievable. I didn't know anything about this before today, oh, yeah. but I'm crazy excited about just kind of keeping tabs on it and telling I'm, everybody about it. You know, like, it. Yeah, tell me, tell everyone about it. And maybe, you know, like I would like to donate for yeah, this cause. I would if I was asked in yeah. a heartbeat. 
I mean, you, so, you have a site somewhere that, that yeah, you can go can, and donate? How can people find out more about what you're doing, doctor? Uh, my, I'll always uh, keep this. You know, if people go to our website. Okay. Uh, if you can see that, epr-technologies.com or epr-technology-singular.com. Both Yeah, we'll include and, this in the description and stuff. And, for sure. description. And, is there, is there know, a place for, we, you can donate in the site? Well, uh, um, you can go to WeFunder. You know, the okay, okay. Um, crowdfunding WeFunder. Sure. And mm-hmm. uh, it's a, um, you know, there's, I think, a $400 minimum that okay, we're asking. Okay. And mm-hmm. uh, we've only just started there. So I think eight hundred. I think there's $800. We raised uh, uh, more money on, um, we started off a little while ago with Start Engine. You know, we did that for three months and we raised, I don't know, about $90,000 after they take their uh you know small amount off the top but uh we had about 175 investors small investors you know two hundred dollars or so each which is very gratifying that there are a hundred and um 70 or so 180 investors who found this intriguing yeah and um, we should connect them with our friend over at gusher yeah this is the type of idea i mean this is past the and ideal point. I, I believe, you know, like if you remove the cap of the, you know, like minimum amount, more and more people, you know, like every month would like to be part of this. I mean, Maybe, I would, yeah. you know, like if there is no... Is this more minimum, of a donation yeah, or donation. is it an investment? Yeah. Well, we'll take investments any size. You can do it by WeFunder. <laughs> okay. uh, okay. You can do a, a $20,000 investment via AngelList. Or look, you can email me directly or at our website. Uh, email addresses are there. And, uh, you know, we can negotiate, uh, <laughs> you know, smaller amounts. I- I'm yeah. open to anything that's legal under the uh, SEC rules, of course. Absolutely. Okay, so Doc, we talked about, you know, like your animal trials were successful. And now oh, you're absolutely. doing... Yeah, so now you're doing human trials. So what stage... Are we at like, you know, in the human trials, I mean? I think, you know, uh, because of the criteria for selection of a patient, that they have to go into cardiac arrest in the trauma center, it's a slow process. So I'm thinking we will have accumulated the 20 required patients in, I would say, another three to six months maximum. Wow. That's cool. Okay. And then the data will be available for the FDA to look at. And the FDA may say, oh, this is great. Let's expand the trial. Or they may say, let's do another 20 patients at Maryland Shock Trauma. You know, it, it's, it can be difficult to predict with the FDA. Mm-hmm. I don't think they're going to say, forget this. Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, it's I can... too important. Yeah, I can definitely see, you know, like EPR technologies becoming the like Microsoft or Amazon of the, you know, like healthcare industry. You know, well, that would be da- great. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I will be one of your investors. <laughs> so let's uh, let's push over into some fun stuff. Get to, getting to know you a little bit better, Doctor. Okay. So, uh, do you celebrate Christmas? Uh, not really. Uh, my my wife. Uh, I, I'm uh, my wife used to celebrate, but she died in uh, 2014. Oh. oh, I'm sorry to hear that. She yeah. was a. Uh, a liver transplant patient. She had what's called, just for the viewers, if they want to look something up, she had erythropoietic protoporphyria, which is a genetic disease having to do with chelating hemoglobin. So the precursor of hemoglobin accumulates in the bone marrow, spills out, and causes a micronodular cirrhosis of the the liver. So when she was 42, she needed a liver transplant and the transplant functioned for another 25 years. But of course, her underlying condition eventually damaged that transplanted liver. And then, you know, she wasn't eligible for another liver wow. transplant. Yeah. Now they're working on her underlying condition. In one sense, if there was money, they could correct it by genetic engineering, the way they can genetically correct hema, uh, um, uh, uh, patients with... Uh, um, what you know, with various hemoglobin abnormalities. You know, like maybe in the future, you know, like you don't have to be dependent on you know, like other donors. Maybe you can, you know, like create a liver 
through 3D printing. Yeah, yeah right. Using <laughs> yes. bio, exactly. bioengineered 3D printing. Yeah, Doc. So, so next, next thing should be on, on your list. Printing yeah. organs. Yeah. yeah. Next thing on yep. your list should be, you know, like creating, you know, like artificial, you know, like organs. <laughs> <yeah>. organs. <laughs> so when you're not trying to change the world and make it a better place, what are you doing? What are your hobbies? What do you like to do to, I, to decompress? Uh, or? I'm a uh, an amateur uh, acrylic painter. Really? Oh, I wish you had some works I'm, I'm to put on camera my, right now. I'd love to see it. I'm looking at my phone for to uh, to see if I can show you one picture. My daughter is a little aspiring artist. She's ten, a little bit, a little bit closer, right there. Oh wow, that's beautiful. How big is that piece, Doctor? Oh, that's uh, that's at least, uh, I guess, uh, three feet high by a foot and okay. a half. Wow. So my daughter is asking frame, for Christmas. I make the frames so, too. Yeah, so that should be on your like you know site. Yeah, yeah. People who are donating, they should get this. Get some, yeah, yeah. Oh, there you go. It's not and amateur. You are a professional. Looks like a some, professional. Uh, <laughs> I'll great. do. I'll do some abstract things too. Okay. Yeah, both my son and my daughter are getting into art now. My daughter wants acrylic m marker pens. These pens that I see. when you write with them, they use acrylic paint and my son wants a digital art tablet not like an ipad or something but a tablet that's just for drawing and it's got like feedback and stuff like that it's really cool okay right there there you go oh wow i did that, that for one of my well? great nieces oh wow so that's what you, i do you said, for uh that's a your hobby. hobby have you do how long have you been doing that only since my wife died, which was okay. in 2014, February the 1st, 2014. Wow. And and then after that, uh, I got into internet dating. Uh, <laughs> were you are you a successful internet dater? Uh, yes. <laughs> well, I, you know, I guess what's I, the, what's I the guess best I internet dating dated, I don't know. She may want me to show it. I've. This is my current. Uh, uh, oh, bean squeeze. Oh, well, you, Doc, you're a handsome guy, but you, uh, you, uh, you, you definitely shot up. You know, you, you, you aimed high and you, you nailed it. Good job, bud. What's well, you her know, name? I, 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 she's there very you go. nice. Yeah. Um. Good. So, so what's the best internet dating site for our audience? I I've well, been I, I've been you know married since I, they've been I, out. after my wife died about a year after my I have three nieces who are my sister's uh uh uh, uh daughters and they said oh I should do internet dating I had never okay. done anything like that before and so then I started and I went on our time which are, is for people over fifty okay mm -hmm. and um. It's a may. I'm not sure of the exact numbers, but there seem to be many more women than men. Huh. And in fact, there were so many women that I never had to message anyone. <laughs> I was sort of, I won't use, I won't say inundated, but I had enough who were messaging me to make a choice. So and in your registration, did you put Dr. Lynn Yaffe? Do you think that helped a little I, bit? I can't recall. I I think I put I was in medical research, something oh, like go. that. I didn't want to yeah. overplay it. Um, yeah. But, um, and, uh, well, that's uh, and awesome. so, you know, I guess, I, I mean, I, I guess I've probably internet dated maybe seven or eight women until the current one that I've stuck with for a while now. I was going to say, you know, some you would do two or three dates and, uh, and that would be that, you know, well, that for whatever really reasons. Cool. I mean, yeah. they were always nice ladies, but compatibility, I guess, is something you have to. I mean, with all the serious work that you're doing, saving lives, you are allowed to have fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, sure. I have fun, paint, <laughs> yeah. and I have <laughs> a, 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 what I think is a gorgeous girlfriend. What other hobbies? Uh, when I'm losing weight, I. I, I like to do it by intermittent fasting. Are you familiar okay. with intermittent fasting? I am. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Supposedly, it's one of the keys to longevity. Um, yeah, I'm trying so that right now. Uh, yeah. Not know, eating for five minutes. living longer. <laughs> uh, my mother lived to be 98. I have wow. 
my current girlfriend's mother is 98. I have another friend who had an aunt who died a few years ago at the age of 107. Wow. Wow. Hundred and seven. Right? Wow. Yeah, that's approaching she, like biblical she, years. Like, yeah. She died in the same house she was born in. Wow, that's in West that's, Virginia. That's rather amazing. That is. But amazing. I don't have any other. Um, I used to have dogs when my wife okay. was alive. We had Great Pyrenees. Are you familiar with the Great oh, Pyrenees? Giant dogs. Yes, very very uh, hairy. Usually they're all white. We had a male yep. that was one hundred and sixty pounds. <laughs> that's a big dog. And, uh, Manny's Manny's not used to having dogs. He house sat for me one time years oh, yeah. ago when we first started when we first opened the business. I had to travel with my wife, and he watched. He stayed at my house, and I had did it, was it just one or two dogs at the time? One. Did I have one? Yeah, yeah it was yeah, just one. one. And one she was dogs, an older she was an older American pit bull terrier, and just a lovey dog. But he's like Brian. I'm trying to go to the bathroom and the dog won't leave the bathroom, just staring at me. What do I do? <laughs> and then he texted me later in the night the dog won't get out of bed. And I'm like, that's because it's the dog's bed. If you don't want to sleep with the dog, sleep on the couch. Yeah. <laughs> well, with great Pyrenees, you have to train them not to try and get on the bed. They're huge. <laughs> yeah. At one time, my wife and I had five of them. Wow. Wow. That's a- she Do you guys live in the city? No, no. We live in, uh, we live about, as the crow flies, about 23 miles north of, uh, Washington D.C. Okay. on five acres. Okay, so that so you got room. Five acres, so an they acre were per dog. around outside, but they were very <laughs> obedient. You would give them the call, and they would come in. And the call was oh. cookies, <laughs> and they would come running for cookies. Yeah. Very nice, very nice. Well, excellent. Hey, Doc, you've given us a ton of time, and uh, I can't be happier with what we've learned today and what we have the ability to share now because of what you've shared with us. Um, this is an amazing thing I think you're doing. Um, Godspeed to you and your research and, uh, you know, hopefully funds just keep uh, flocking your way to be able to, to, to make this happen as soon as legally, morally, and ethically possible uh, for, for, the, for the betterment of, of lives that you could be yeah, saving. Yeah, the sooner the better, you know, yeah, like, yeah, absolutely. I want to live Great. like more than Thank 107. Thank you very much. You bet. It's and been a real pleasure, guys. It has been. Thank you so much, Doctor. You take care. We'll hope to see you soon. Sometime. Yeah, let's keep in touch. 